Hello, and welcome to the Fiby. This episode's games are full of adventures and excitement. But first, who wants a contest? The exceptionally talented Nolan Nasser has supplied us with three mouse mats to give away to fans of the show. These are great. I recently got some myself and really like the size in addition to the art. Plenty of room for my two work mice, and my phone can now rest on a soft mat instead of a hard desk. So, if you want one of these gorgeous mats, here's what you're going to do. You're going to tweet at 5xGames a picture of your favorite board game box cover art with the hashtag NolanIsTheBest, all one word. Do that before, say, midnight Eastern, September 8th, and we will pick three random winners from anywhere in the world and I'll mail you a mouse mat. Seriously, Nolan is the best, and super generous to let us do this. Okay, time is short, here's the rest of the intro. We have Sarah starting us off with Clank. Lindsay covers Dale of Merchants. Mason is exploring near and far. I am literally drowning in incurable diseases with pandemic Iberia. And last but certainly not least, Stephanie closes this episode out with Favor of the Pharaoh. Now let's all get quiet and listen to Sarah. Since its introduction about 10 years ago, deck building has become a classic card game mechanism. I love deck building games, and I'm intrigued by games that play around with deck building, try to take it to another level. Clank, designed by Paul Denon and published in 2016 by Renegade Games, expands the typical deck building mechanism by adding a dungeon map. The cards in your deck have buying power like most deck builders, but also have movement and fighting ability. These cards allow you to explore the map, search for treasure, and fight monsters. But the most interesting mechanism in Clank is, appropriately enough, the Clank. Clank represents the noise you make wandering around the dungeon, and some cards cause you to generate Clank in the form of a wooden token. Periodically, a sleepy dragon hears you noisy adventurers clattering around, the Clank tokens are collected into a bag, and several are drawn to represent a dragon attack. Each of your tokens that's drawn is added to your damage. I love that the bad cards in Clank don't just weaken your hand, they actively harm you. If too much of your Clank is drawn from the bag and your damage gets too high, you're out of the game. I'm not a fan of player elimination, but I don't mind it in Clank, mainly because it's rare. I've played Clank many times, and I think I've only seen someone run out of health once, maybe twice, and even then only at the very end. Maybe I just play with cautious people, but it seems to me that the damage is mainly a source of added tension, and only very rarely actually eliminates a player. Grabbing a treasure and escaping the dungeon would be too easy if you didn't have to worry about how much Clank was going into the bag and how much is coming out. The first player to escape the dungeon triggers an endgame in which the dragon attacks every turn, drawing more Clank each time. This lasts for only a handful of turns and then the game is over. This gives the end of the game a manic quality as everyone abandons their careful route and runs like crazy for the exit. I've heard complaints that the first player out has to sit watching everyone else finish, but I don't feel that way at all. The times I've been the first out, I've found it exciting and hilarious, watching the others race to follow me. Plus, the first one out gets to draw the clank for all those final dragon attacks, so you feel almost like you're the dragon, breathing fire on your opponents. The most valuable treasures are deep in the dungeon, and there's a substantial point bonus for escaping, so going all the way down to get the best treasure is risky. But it is possible to score high by grabbing all the treasures you possibly can and getting close to the entrance, even if you don't make it all the way out. I do wish there were more ways to thin your deck. There are only a couple of deck thinning cards, and Clank's pool of available cards is so large that you might not see one in an entire game. I can understand why they didn't include more deck thinning. Managing Clank is the core of the game, and if it were easy to thin your deck, 
everyone would just trash all the cards that create clank. Still, thinning the deck is kind of central to deck building. They could have included cards that let you say, trash any card that doesn't generate clank. Maybe an icon on the clank cards could mark them as untrashable. That would let you get rid of the rest of your starter hand without interfering with the clank mechanism. My bigger concern about Clank is that after a number of plays, the map starts to feel overly familiar. The game comes with two maps. My experience is that people figure out a route through each map that they like, and they tend to follow it every time. This can make the game start to feel stale. Fortunately, Renegade Games is on top of this. They've already released an expansion, Sunken Treasures, with two new maps, a bunch of new cards, and a new mechanism about flooded caves and breathing apparatus that doesn't overly complicate the game. It was everything I wanted in a Clank expansion, and now that I have it, I think I'll rarely play Clank without it. There's also a companion app by Direwolf Digital that adds variety to the game in the form of mini-challenges, like buy a card worth at least five coins, find a major secret, have four movement in one turn, and so on. Players have only a few turns to complete each mini-challenge and get a bonus if they do, but a penalty if they don't. The app even has a solo mode which provides enough variability to turn Clank into a solid one-player game. I also have high hopes for the follow-up game, Clank in Space, which was just announced a few days ago. Clank in Space has a modular board, which may sidestep my issue with the maps entirely. I'm looking forward to trying Clank in Space, but to be honest, I really love original Clank and don't see the new game replacing it. I hope that Clank becomes enough of an evergreen that Renegade continues to publish new maps for it. I've even seen a fan design map on BoardGameGeek, and I hope it will be the first of many, as I expect to keep playing Clank for a long time to come. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not stumbling past a sleeping dragon, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Lindsay here. I'm back again after a week off for Gen Con, and this episode I'm talking about Dale of Merchants, and a little about Dale of Merchants too. These are two to four player hand management, deck building and set collection games designed by Sammy Laskell, who also created the artwork, and it's published by his own company, Snowdale Designs, and it plays around 30 to 40 minutes. Dale of Merchants was a rather big Kickstarter hit a couple of years ago, and that was a little before I really understood or got involved with Kickstarter, so I really missed out on the excitement of the initial campaign. Last year, after joining the Instagram gaming community, I'd often see photos of it popping up here and there, and I just thought this looks really cute, because it is a really sweet game involving some rather adorable creatures. But since buying it and playing it several times over the last year or so, what I like is the layers of the game and the depth that's wrapped inside this deceptively cute and seemingly simple bundle. Inside the merchants, your plan is animal folk, so you can build a collection of market stalls. You must finish the game with eight stalls in total, they each must be to the exact value of 1, 2, 3, 4 and so on. And each stall must be built from the same type of animal folk. So stall 5 for example is going to be all snappy scarlet macaws. Once a stall is built, the cards in the stall cannot be used for abilities. So once they're built, they're built. But there are some cards that modify your stalls. You begin the game by choosing as many animal folk decks as there are players, shuffling them together to form a marketplace deck. And starting your own with one card from each deck and junk cards, which are a bit like deck loggers but are actually quite useful to some animal folk. You then purchase cards from the marketplace to get more cards, do more things, and you go from there. I think one of the things I love about the game so much is how good a design it actually is. The way the cards in each deck and the decks themselves interact with each other, and your choice in how to use the cards is extremely clever. You can either use the cards for their value to build a stall, use them for their effect, or an effect and bonus. That's the plus symbol that appears in the technique cards. This means play another card, or perhaps another bonus card, 
so you can really amp up the power of your term. When deciding what cards to use for what purpose, what to buy in the market and when to build a stall, represent a wealth of decision making. I also really appreciate the way that the different decks' abilities reflect the animal it depicts and their nature. So chameleons, for example, the flexible shopkeepers, they can copy or mimic cards in your stall, on the market or on your player's market. Squirrels, or stashing vendors, utilise those pesky junk cards so they can search your discard pile or build additional stacks. And it's those details I admire, like the thought that's really gone into it. This also gives the game a wonderful replayability, because the decks are all unique, they bring different flavours to the game, so you can decide what kind of game you want to have, or choose decks with the player's strong points or playing styles in mind. Some people may want a fairly chilled out friendly game, others may want a bit of take that, some may want some randomness thrown in, and the lucky slots are great for that, as they involve dice rolling to modify cards value and swapping cards at random with other players. Some give you some extra player interaction, and crocodiles, for example, bring conflict. So it's really fantastic because each game can be completely different from the last, and it's endless fun mixing and matching and finding your favourite or most suitable combinations. As in many deck building games, it can start off a little slow. You may have turns trying to rid yourself of junk, buying a couple of high value cards, and then building one or two stalls. But the difficulty of the game increases as you continue to play. I've often built the first five stalls with total A's, then really struggle to complete the rest before the other players. It can get a little bit anxiety ridden trying to do this whilst watching your opponent cruise the finish line and can get really frustrating towards the end. This is actually one of the reasons I like the game very much, because even though it looks cute and nice, it's actually a real bugger, which I think is fantastic, especially as learning and playing the game is actually very straightforward. Dale of Merchants 2 kickstarted a year later and it was just as successful as its predecessor. It can be played as a standalone game or integrated with the decks in the first game. I actually think too is slightly more refined and you can kind of see the growth between the games. I think my favourite factions appear in Dao 2. I love the experimenting platypuses who allow you to fiddle and prune your deck and they are really fun to play with. Also, who doesn't love a platypus with a spanner? I'm also a fan of the observant snowy owls who in my opinion are slightly more advanced and bring in further player interaction and give you opportunities to play off an opponent's turn. Also, I just love the intimidating dwarf crocodiles because, you know, they've got bowler hats on. The artwork in the game isn't ludicrously detailed, and many of the item cards are just fairly simple sketches, but the animal folk themselves are fantastic. Not only are they adorable, but I love the way their character shines through in their expressions. Even if you go and have a look at the artwork right now, you'll see what I mean. I was really happy to hear about the upcoming Kickstarter game set in the Daily Merchants universe. It's called Dawn of Peacemakers and it's going to be a very different game from the previous two. So this is a co-op war game using an evolving campaign style setup. And there'll be terrain building and storytelling and parts of the story to unlock as you move forward. And I think this is a really interesting choice of how to take Day of Merchants forward. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Have Meeples. Pop on my blog, www.shinyhavemeeplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter, Capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Near and Far. I've been putting off talking about Near and Far for a while now. First I said, well, I just want to wait until we finish the campaign. And then I said, I want to wait until other people have had the chance to play it more so I don't spoil anything. Though I assure you, there will be no spoilers. But I think the real reason I've been stalling is that I don't exactly know how to talk about it. Let's start with some simple descriptives, and then we can wade into the normative later. Near and Far is a brand new thematic adventure euro from Red Raven Games, designed, illustrated, co-written, and published by Ryan Lockett. 
If you're not familiar with it already, you may have heard of some other Red Raven games like Empires of the Void, City of Iron, Islebound, or Above and Below, the previous story-based Euro that Near and Far is not exactly a sequel to, but maybe a successor to, possibly a usurper of. In Near and Far, you're exploring across the strange and broken land of Arzium, hoping to find the last ruin, an ancient machine that can restore your world to its former glory and fix all the complex problems in your life. Through the huge storybook, you'll meet a wide variety of weird, amazing, sometimes frightening inhabitants of the towns and landscapes that you pass. Sometimes they'll give you a kind word, a sack of food, and a gold coin. Sometimes they'll try to smash your head in with a rock. Centrally, Near and Far is a resource management euro, like a lot of other Red Raven games. And if it was only that, with no storybook, no characters to care about, no adventures to have, it would still be a great game worth you owning. Every map has a large town that acts as a home base for your party. You go there to recruit adventurers at the saloon, work at the farm to get food, work the mine to get golden gems, buy pack birds or tortoises to carry your gear, or visit the mystic's hut or general store to get items that help you on your trip. All of these actions are a relatively simple worker placement game. If someone's already in the building you'd like to use, you can duel them by checking your respective party's strength and rolling a d6. You gain reputation, which you can spend on items or just save to earn points at the end of the game. Do you want to get the most points to win your game of near and far? Sure, of course you do. But you want to go exploring and have encounters even more. Many of the map points have a corresponding number in the storybook. When you go there, another player reads a paragraph and gives you a choice to make. Do you help the lizard folk track down the bandits that robbed them, or do you keep going, hoping to make it to the mountain lake before dark? Or the elderly robot gives you a sack of grain to deliver to his son in town. Do you do as he asked and go hungry, or do you eat the grain on your way back? If you're playing through a multi-game campaign, these encounters will add up over time to a kind of narrative. But through side quests, the hundreds of encounters in the book, and the different setups every time you play a map, one person would have to play dozens of full campaigns to have experienced every character and situation. I think the engaging and emotionally difficult aspects of Near and Far are what's really put it over the top for me. No one is a crusading hero in Near and Far. If you're looking for an epic game of barbaric conquest, this is not it. You're constantly being asked to make these hard moral decisions, or pick between two unwinnable outcomes. Now, lots of encounters do have positive outcomes, but you're more likely to be given a loaf of bread from a grateful family when you save their son from drowning than to win your own kingdom by slaying a mythical beast. And near and far, the mythical beast is probably going to ask you into their hut for a cup of herbal tea. The storybook encounters were co-written by Brenna Aspland, Alf Seeger, and Melanie Lockett. They each have their own styles, but all the stories gel together in a cohesive view of Arzium and life after the end of civilization. The art is, of course, absolutely beautiful. Ryan has a very specific style and aesthetic, I think you're either all in or you're out on it. If your idea of what looks good is very traditional fantasy art, then Near and Far might not be for you. The production quality is excellent, though if you're playing a campaign, I would highly recommend you sleeve in your cards as you will be handling them quite a lot. One possible negative for some players with larger game groups might be the four-player maximum, but we found it to be the perfect length for two-player. We were able to leave it set up for the better part of two weeks and play a game of our campaign almost every day. The box, because you knew I had to get there, is a normal 12 by 12 ticket to ride size box like the other Red Raven games, and frankly was almost too small with my Plano organizer. There's no slack fill here, and I deeply appreciate it. I promised this would be spoiler free, and I meant it, but I will tell you that I wasn't ready to start another story campaign, or even a character quest campaign, until I'd been able to really process the emotional arc of our first time through. At the end of our 10 games, I felt both a sense of catharsis and closure, and also a sense of loss. I don't think I'd want to play the next story campaign with the same character, but I'm excited to find out more about her life and backstory in her upcoming character quest campaign. Red Raven has made a great choice to include the Arcade Mode deck, allowing you to play the game without using the storybook at all and flipping over cards for your encounters. 
So even if you'd completely exhausted every story in the book, which honestly would take you like multiple years in regular play, you can still enjoy the game. If you're a solo gamer, there's a great BGG thread and print and play file allowing you to use the arcade mode cards to play near and far by yourself. We'll include a link in the show notes. So who should buy near and far? People who like resource management euros. People who have a regular game partner or group to play a 10 game campaign. People who don't mind reading out loud. People whose desire for narrative adventures extends beyond classic sword and sorcery. And people who can decide between attacking a rogue lizard man in an ice storm or letting him share your tent and food. Near and Far is my game of the year and one of the best board game experiences I've ever had. It sells for around $50 and is worth every penny. I give it 10 out of 10 sips of Mountain Spring Water from a Lizard Folk Canteen. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. It's not often that one gets to use the words pandemic and under the radar in the same sentence, but that would be an apt description for my game this week, Pandemic Iberia. The at one time limited, but now fairly ubiquitous release from Z-Man Games unfortunately arrived in 2016 shortly after Pandemic Legacy Season 1, and seems to have slipped through the cracks, either due to people being in the middle of Pandemic Legacy campaigns, or being completely burned out on playing or even hearing about Pandemic. Which is a real shame as the gameplay and changes from the base game created by Jesus Torres and Matt Leacock are top-notch. In this edition, we are members of the Second Royal Philanthropic Expedition in the mid-19th century Spain and Portugal. Pandemic Iberia is heavy on the historical theme and feel. You are trying your best to slow down the diseases plaguing the Iberian Peninsula through treatment and prevention, as there were no cures back then. Each character role feels thematic, time-appropriate, and useful. Though, some like the Railway Man, who can help you lay track extra fast, seems to be a staple in all of my games so far. Laying railroad track extra fast is useful because transportation in the mid-19th century is slow. By default, you can only move one city per turn unless you take a boat, but that requires you to be traveling from a city on the coast to a city on the coast, and does not help with the interior. But once you've laid rails, your character can now move as far as they want in one move, so long as they are following the rails. The other slightly different concept in this edition is the ability to play zone defense. The water purification tokens, which you can place two at a time by discarding a card that matches a city in the region, can stop any city in that zone from becoming infected during the infection phase. The agronomist and the Royal Academy scientists are particularly good at this. Similarly, the nurse has a token that moves with her and can stop all infections in a region adjacent to her that has that marker. So you can cover three to five cities at once and is very powerful if you know roughly what area will be hit next infection draw. These are critical abilities as without the hope of curing a disease, controlling the diseases through prevention is your best option. The rest of the game, however, plays out pretty similar mechanically to base Pandemic, with the other action and roles being roughly equivalent. Where Pandemic Iberia kicks up the difficulty, uniqueness, and immersion a notch is through the optional rules. The influx of patients challenge causes patients to travel toward the nearest hospital that treats their disease. It makes preventing outbreaks much more difficult as the hospitals can quickly be overrun. So you probably don't want to build a hospital until you're close to being ready to research, except that ability where building a hospital now removes all disease cubes in a city it's built in is super helpful, which makes the choice of when and where to build a hospital a painful balancing act. Similarly, the optional historical diseases challenge assigns a historical disease from the time to the diseases you're dealing with, 
cholera, typhus, malaria, and yellow fever can all spread across the peninsula quickly. You may use from one to all four historical diseases, each of them acting in a unique way that makes the game more difficult by either causing them to spread faster or making them much more difficult to treat. I think these thematic challenges are both brilliant additions to the game that clearly elevate it above the base game. And clearly I'm not the only one to think so, as Pandemic Iberia has the second highest average rating on BGG for any Pandemic game. I don't know what it is about a historical theme's ability to grab me more than a game set in modern times, but the historical abilities and event cards really immerse me much more than the modern equivalents in base Pandemic. The art by Chris Quilliams certainly helps as well as the line drawings on the event cards really set the time, and the Spanish tile art style on the card backs evokes a place while also hinting at researching the diseases under a microscope. I wish there was a little more diversity among the people portrayed, but at least the ratio to men and women is decent. And in the end, it all just comes together brilliantly. This is certainly the prettiest version of Pandemic in my opinion. Because of the initial travel restrictions, the beginning of this game starts off difficult, yet, as travel gets easier due to the railroad, the game doesn't get any easier because you can never cure a disease, so you're only ever removing one or two cubes from a city at any time. There is an ebb and flow to standard Pandemic, and I just personally haven't felt anything but near panic start to finish in Pandemic Iberia. I've also never had a game end that wasn't won or lost by the skin of our teeth. There's a tenseness to Pandemic Iberia that runs straight through from start to finish with no breaks in between. I'd say this is also maybe a slight step up from the base game in complexity, but not too bad as my 10-year-old can play it with me. Pandemic Iberia may not fall under the new hotness of legacy-style games, but it is a smart, engaging, beautiful, tense, and deeply thematic co-op game, and is certainly worth your consideration. I may have pre-ordered mine back when it was supposed to be a limited release, but I am glad it has a wider distribution now, as I really feel this is a game that shouldn't be overlooked any longer. So, until next time, if you want to discuss... You know, actually, I don't want to discuss any diseases. How about we just skip that part this time? But if you want to discuss anything else, you can still reach me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Have I mentioned before how much I love chucking dice? Like, great big handfuls of dice. There's a satisfaction in the sound of plastic tumbling on a table. My earliest gaming memory is playing Yahtzee. Well, not so much playing Yahtzee, but watching my parents and grandparents play Yahtzee. I must have been three, maybe four years old. I remember watching those dice fall from those small cups over and over. Friday Night Yahtzee was my favorite time. But lots of dice do not a great game make. So combine an engine builder with some heavy dice rolling and, ladies and gentlemen, you may have found a surefire hit for me. And that's just what Tom Lehman did with Favor of the Pharaoh, published by Bezier Games. In favor of the Pharaoh, you and your fellow players are working to improve your standing within the Pharaoh's court. Players start the game with three standard six-sided dice in their pool. On each player's turn, dice are rolled, and the results of the dice allow players to draft from the available tiles, which lets them get more dice, which they can roll on their next turn to draft better tiles, which lets them get more dice, 
and so on and so on. Once a player drafts a tile, they can't draft a second copy of it on a subsequent roll. But often that's not an issue since tiles go quickly and there aren't always enough to go around for everybody. It's simple, but it's not without some strategy. Not all dice work the same. The white dice can't be rerolled. Other dice have symbols that allow you to take other actions. And some die are just numbers, but not always the full one to six. The good news is that on your turn, as long as you lock one die, you can continue to reroll your remaining dice, save those pesky white ones. But have no fear. Not only will tiles give you extra dice, but some will let you add a randomly drawn scarab token which you can later trade in to do an extra reroll of one of your die, or add one pip to any one die that you've locked in. The end of the game is triggered when one player rolls seven or more of a kind. The remaining players who had yet to take a turn that round get to participate in one final roll-off with one extra die in their pool to try to beat that player's roll, either with more dice or with a higher die value. The game plays two to four players. Depending on the number of players, the available tiles and dice combinations needed to draft them changes. But that would be my one gripe. While this does lead to some variation in the game, the variation isn't, well, varied enough. Oh, how I yearn for an expansion for Favor of the Pharaoh with some extra tiles. But will I still play it? You bet. This is a dice game after all, and the luck that comes with rolling dice helped to fill in the replayability gaps. There's also a great free app for this game that will guide you to a balanced yet randomized setup, and I have yet to play this game without it. I love Favor of the Pharaoh as a two-player game. I love it at three. I love it at four. No matter the combination, the gameplay is quick and makes for a great game to start a game night. Favor of the Pharaoh has an MSRP of $59.99, but it can easily be found for about $45 on most online retailers, which seems like a much more reasonable price for a game of this weight. So if you're as dice-obsessed as I am, Favor of the Pharaoh from Bezier Games might just be the game for you. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Thanks for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild at number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links you can find on fivebygames.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.